Let me begin this morning with a quote from the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. This, if you weren't here last night, will, I think, perfectly encapsulates our time as we considered the incarnation last night. This might be a little spiritual left jab to your face, but this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. If you do not believe in the unique deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian, whatever else you may be. He said, we're not looking at a good man only. We're not interested merely in the greatest teacher the world has ever seen. No, we're face to face with God, the eternal Son. He has been in this world and he took upon him human nature and dwelt among us, a man amongst men, the God-man. We are face to face with the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation and the virgin birth. He says it's all here and it shines out in all the fullness of its amazing glory. Oh, what manner of man is this? he's more than a man. The answer is, he is also God. So this morning you woke up, hopefully with joy in your heart, to celebrate the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus is by far, and without question, the greatest reality in all of the universe. He is the divine Savior, and he is, listen to this, the climax of everything in this world. And praise God, we have another Christmas day to celebrate. I just got news uh, not too long ago, a couple of days ago, that a fellow pastor who was up in Hollister at age 47 had a massive heart attack, and he's no longer with us. I grieve for him, his family, obviously. We need to pray He just moved to Texas to take on another church, but I'm sure the church in Hollister is grieving. It is a sober reminder. We might not have another Christmas. You don't know how long you have on this planet. And so rejoice that today you get to exult in the Savior and do exactly what we sang, to go and tell the great news. That's my prayer this morning that we just consider the great news of the incarnation one more time. So would you pray with me? Lord, may you this morning once again capture our hearts and our minds. God, fill us with great and lofty thoughts about our Savior. Use your holy word to inspire righteous living and a longing to walk near to you. And God, may by your Holy Spirit, would you please compel us to give our lives to giving Jesus Christ the glory, the glory that he so rightly deserves. We pray this in his glorious and beautiful and wonderful name. And God's people said, amen. Well, if you are in Christ this Christmas, I am so thankful for you. I am. I am thankful that you have forgiveness of sins. I'm thankful that he has provided you with everything for life and godliness. He's provided you with salvation, with atonement, with reconciliation. And you say those are some big doctrinal words, but 
the soteriological realities, your salvation is not just fancy words. That great theology has implications for your life personally today. The truths that we have in this book right here about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, it impacts all of us. It impacts the world. But it impacts you physically, emotionally, psychologically. It impacts our culture. It impacts us socially, economically, domestically, internationally, and today, all around the globe, people that are in Christ are celebrating his very name. And this is what we've been looking at as we've witnessed Luke kind of unfolding for us as he's setting the stage and building the momentum leading up to the announcement we're coming to in our text this morning. He's going to get to Jesus, but up to this point, what he's been doing is helping Theophilus and us connect all of the Old Testament dots. And he does this by showing us numerous parallels going all the way back to the Old Testament. All of them are intended to help us think back to God's previous prophecies, the prophecies that come into play and the promises that are now being fulfilled. And what Luke wants us to remember is that God is trustworthy. He is reliable. He always comes through on his word. And it's been 400 years since he's spoken. But now he's spoken again. That silence is gone. Gabriel comes with the announcement of the great news that the forerunner has arrived. A woman in her old age is going to conceive. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, we know, are well past the years of being able to have a child. But God spoke again, which means it will be done. And listen, for us who are reading, there should be flashing lights going on. If you know the Old Testament, you know that everything that Luke is unfolding here points us back to the Old Testament. A woman advanced in years and beyond the point of conception should make us think about Abraham and Sarah and their son, Isaac. This whole barren woman motif is also seen in Alkina and Hannah, that's Samuel's parents, and Manoah and his wife, that's Samson's parents. And what we discover from those stories and from the lives of those children is that at times, God will take a barren woman and by his own will and his own choice, he will cause something significant to happen. And so these flashing lights that are pointing to the barrenness of women also should remind us of prophecies being fulfilled. There's prophecies regarding the forerunner coming to make a way ready for the Lord, to turn the hearts back to God, to bring about repentance and reconciliation. And so there's Isaiah's prophecy, Micah's prophecy, Daniel's prophecy. There's even the angel Gabriel who last appeared back in Daniel, who spoke of this very day when Jesus would be born. Listen, there's also allusions to Pharaoh and to Moses and to the Exodus There's allusions to oppression and the need for deliverance. There's allusions to exile and to captivity and the need for a rescuer. And we've only looked at 25 verses. That's all that we've covered already in 
Luke's gospel, but this is his goal. And it's not just to help us connect the theological dots, but to color the unity of the Bible. You see, the gospel is so precious, you could shrink it down to a verse. You can package it in a track. You can put it in the four biographies, which are called the four gospels. But really, the gospel is all of God's redemptive history recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And Jesus, listen to this, is the centerpiece of it all. So last week, we left off with that wonderful announcement from the angel Gabriel to Zechariah that he was going to have a miracle baby. He and his wife Elizabeth are going to have this child in their old age, and this child is going to bring them great joy. And it's not just joy for them as a couple, but for all of Israel and for all of the Gentiles and the whole world. And you ask, well, how would a little baby born to a humble priest and his wife bring that kind of joy? And the answer to that is he's just going to point us to the Messiah because that's where joy comes from. Joy is going to be born six months later. And this is where we pick up the story. So would you please look with me at Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Here's God's word as we pick up the narrative. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. Well, here's our main idea this morning on Christmas. In Luke 1, 26 through 33, Gabriel's announcement to Mary proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the climax of world history. And listen, therefore, he deserves our worship, our love, and obedience. There is no one else that is more qualified, no one more capable of bringing God's salvation than Jesus Christ. And the outline here just comes straight from the text. It's a five-fold description of Jesus. We're going to start by looking at his title there, the Savior. That's his name, Jesus. Then we're going to see that he is supreme. He shall be great. And he's also the Son. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. He is also the sovereign king. He will have the throne of his father, David. And he is sine fine, without end. His kingdom will have no end. So let's start there with, he is the Savior. In verse 32, you shall call his name Jesus. The biblical concept now of naming is rooted in the ancient world's understanding of what a name actually expresses. You see, to know a person and his name was to reveal their character, their essence. 
giving your child expressed your desire for that child. So our three kids, you, you know our three kids. Our daughter, Michaela, is named after Michael. Michael means who resembles the Lord or who is like God. And we gave her the middle name Joy because we wanted Michaela to bring joy to many people. Titus means honorable and pleasing. And we gave him the middle name Justice because we want him to be a man full of justice and truth. And Judah means praise the Lord. His middle name is James, which means supplanter, and we don't want him to be a supplanter. But we want him to be a doer of the word, and we want him to be wise like the book of James. But this is the biblical custom. When parents named their kids, they were given authority by God to speak over them. And the hope was that their character would be shaped and they would grow into the things that mom and dad named them. And hopefully they would exemplify those characteristics. But every now and then, on rare occasions, God would intervene and he would take away the authority of mom and dad to name the kids and he himself would name them. And so not only does he change names like Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah, but he told them, your son's name is going to be Isaac. And he told Hannah, her boy's name would be Samuel. And he told Zachariah, his boy's name would be John. And he told Mary that her boy's name would be Jesus. And when we think about those two names, John and Jesus, it's very clear that God was not subtle in what he was trying to communicate. We talked about John his name means Yahweh is gracious. John's name, listen, it expresses the heart of God. You say, what is Yahweh like? He's John. He's gracious. He's, his mercy precedes his judgment. And we see that in John's ministry as he comes to prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming with judgment. He's coming again. And John comes with the message, repent and turn and then Jesus' name, Iesu in the Greek, Yeshua in Hebrew, it means Yahweh saves. There is no ambiguity here. What was God doing when he decided that his name would be Jesus? Mary was given this command to call him Jesus, and his calling are inseparable. His name and calling are inseparable because his name perfectly matches his ministry. And so in a simple and yet profound naming, Gabriel gave Mary both his name and his mission. Jesus was sent here to die for sins and to save God's people. And whenever people heard this name, Joshua, Joshua, Yeshua, no doubt they would have thought back to Joshua, who succeeded Moses, who conquered the enemies of Israel, and who led the people into the promised land, but Jesus is significantly different because Jesus did not come just to deliver physically. He didn't come just to heal illnesses. That wasn't the emphasis of his work. His saving ministry was much larger because his ministry would bring about salvation from sin. We read this in Psalm 130. O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, look, God cares about salvation from enemies and from disease and from death. 
But what God cares about most is that enemy and that disease that damns people to hell. And that is exactly why he sent his son. With the arrival of Christ in Bethlehem, the problem that lie at the root of every single pain and sorrow and suffering, Jesus came to solve. He was born to save his people from their sin. And later, when the angel Gabriel visits Joseph, and Joseph is beside himself that the one he's betrothed to is pregnant, Gabriel tells him, Take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the question is, why am I calling him Jesus? And he answers it, for he will save his people from their sins. Look, the unmistakable reason why we celebrate Christmas is because the Savior was sent to save us from sins, to free us from the power and the penalty of sin. And when you fast forward nine months later, when we flip on over to Luke 2, an angel announces the birth of Christ to the shepherds. And he says this in verse 11 of chapter 2, For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then we sang about this, or we prayed about it. Simeon takes the baby Jesus into his hands. As he has the baby Jesus in his hands, that baby has the whole entire universe in his hands. But Simeon is looking at the baby and says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why did he come into the world? To save sinners. Listen, this is why Jesus was born, to save you and me from our sins. As I was singing this morning, thinking about that baby, fast-forwarding to seeing him on the cross, and as Jonathan prayed, he took that for us. He bore the penalty for us. I envisioned my wife on the cross. I envisioned my daughter and my sons on the cross and my mom on the cross and your faces on the cross. You belonged on the cross. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to do that for you. That is why he came to this earth. He is the Savior. And everything that we've seen so far, this impossible human and God birth, the, the naming of the forerunner, the naming of the Messiah, all of it is intentional. And it shouldn't come as a surprise because this has been God's MO from the very beginning. In Isaiah 43, 11, we read, I, even I am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. Well, not only is he the Savior, but he's supreme. Look at verse 32. Very simple. It just says, he will be great. And you say, well, what's so great about Jesus? I actually had someone ask me, well, if Jesus is so great, then why is everyone else named Jesus? There's lots of Jesuses in the world. A lot of people are named. In fact, in the Bible, there's multiple people actually named Jesus. So if his name is so great, why is he all that great? How unique is that? But listen, as people named their son Joshua, it's because every mom and dad would hope and pray 
that their child would fulfill God's plan to rescue Israel. And so even though it's a common name, it doesn't detract from how special it is because salvation is what everyone was actually hoping for. But finally, the real Jesus is here, not a salvation that's anticipated, but a salvation that is now actualized. You see, Jesus' greatness is on a whole nother level. When Gabriel announced that he will be great, we need to understand that we can never plumb the depths of just how great he is. He possesses transcendent greatness, unrivaled greatness. My kids, they're in classical conversations. And so they're always singing songs and listening to these songs. And a lot of the history songs and timeline songs have people talking about how great they are. Ramesses II, the great of Egypt, Cyrus the Great of Persia, Alexander the Great of Greece. There is also Herod the Great, who wasn't so great, Catherine the Great of Russia, Charlemagne, Charlemagne or Charles the Great of France, Frederick the Great of Prussia, Genghis Khan, who also wasn't very great, of Mongolia. But it's not just the history books and historical figures who are great. It's athletes who desire to be great. The GOAT, the greatest of all time. So whether it's MJ or Muhammad Ali or Messi or Manning or Tiger Woods, the fact is that everyone's greatness will, in fact, be superseded. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has the scoring title, but not for long if LeBron keeps playing and catches up. Every single person will have their record broken. Someone's going to run a faster time, lift more weight, win more championships, sing better songs, collect more awards. But when we think about Jesus, he's not like the average old monarch or movie star or musician or athlete or artist or politician. No one is going to be better than Jesus. He is by far superior in his greatness. Listen to John's testimony. Jesus said of John, he's the greatest born of a woman. What does John say about Jesus? Without qualification, John says, no, he is greatest. John 3, 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Listen, one day you will die. And if you are in Christ, you will get to be with him in glory forever. And I just want you to know that you will never get to the point of figuring out how great Jesus is. You have all of eternity and will never, ever be able to comprehend or understand just how great the Savior is. Well, he's not only the Savior. He's not only supreme. But look there at the text. Verse 32 says, And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That word there, El Elyon, it just means exalted one. There is no one higher than Jesus. This title is often used of God in the context of kingship and 
kingdom. So I just want to show you from the scripture how important this is. The very first time we see this is Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek's name, his name means the king of righteousness. And we read this as he's talking to Abram. He says, Blessed be Abram, the God of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then he gave him a tenth of all. It's funny that Sam mentioned not reading Psalm 60 because it talks about David vanquishing his enemies. But that motif is extremely important because every time the Most High is mentioned, it's always mentioned as God himself vanquishing the enemies. We see that again in 2 Samuel 22 and verse 1. David spoke to Yahweh the words of the song in the day that Yahweh delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And we read this in verse 14. Yahweh thundered from heaven and the Most High gave his voice. We see that title of God Most High in Psalm 18 and 21. Again, every time it's conveying in the context of the king and deliverance. And then we think about Daniel, chapters 4 and 5. When Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he reveals that God Most High is sovereign over all, and that leads us into Daniel chapter 7. You say, well, what's so significant about Daniel chapter 7? Well, there is the Ancient of Days, the God of glory. And the Ancient of Days has the Son of Man come to him, and he gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all might serve him. And this is where it gets interesting. Because if you can take the throne of God from God, what does that mean? You are God. That is precisely the point of Daniel 7. Now fast forward to Jesus' ministry. What does he call himself all the time? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. And we see it escalate and escalate and escalate until he gets before the Sanhedrin and the high priest who shuts his ears and tears his robe because Jesus says this in Matthew 26 when they asked him, are you the Christ? Just come out and tell us. And Jesus says, you yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus said is, I am Daniel chapter 7, standing right in front of you. I am God. And it so ticked off the religious leaders that they sentenced him to death after they slapped him and spit on his face. And I just want to remind you that Jesus did that for you and me. So we're not just celebrating a little tiny baby in a manger. We're celebrating God incarnate, the Son of Man come to earth to save us from our sin. Well, the Son of the Most High just means two things. One, we've already looked at, that he is the king. He is the king that Daniel 7 points to, but it also makes very clear that he is God. 
that no one else is powerful enough to rule over all the nations, that no one else is sovereign enough and can ever lose that kind of power, that no one else is wise enough to orchestrate all of human events, that no one else is eternal enough to transcend all of history. And just notice one more thing. It's not just that Jesus is the Son of the Most High, but the text says that they will, he will be called Son of the Most High. Jesus doesn't call himself that, but the angel Gabriel does. Do you know who else calls him the Son of the Most High? The demons. The demons call Jesus the Son of the Most High. They know exactly that he has the power and authority to cast them into the abyss. And so they plead. They plead with the Son of the Most High. Not now. Please not now. So listen, those in the spiritual realm realm know exactly who he is. He's the one that rules over all the nations. He's the one that has ruled for all time, over all history. He himself is the climax of all human history. He is the Savior. He is supreme. He is the sovereign king. But he's also sovereign. Look at verse 32. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Savior, supreme, son of the most high, and sovereign. What is the big deal about the throne of David? And just real quickly, for thousands of years, generation after generation, people have been waiting for the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be fulfilled. And it was a thousand years before Gabriel's announcement that Gabriel tells Mary that King David's Messiah is actually here. Look there at the promise in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again, this is making the connections, all of the scripture pointing to Jesus being the fulfillment. In verse 12, we read this. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is the one who's going to establish David's throne And the Davidic covenant here in 2 Samuel 7 proclaims that this covenant is the convergence of all of the past covenants that were made by God to man. And the reason why we could tell that is because God tells David, I am going to make your name great. He says that to someone else back in the Old Testament. I am going to make your name great. Who was that? Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so what we see is God is perpetuating his promises. And the one who fills the Davidic covenant also fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. All of the promises that are made to Abraham are wrapped up in the Davidic covenant. And the one who is the Davidic king is the king over all of the covenants. It's not just Abrahamic covenant. It's the Noahic covenant. You think back to Genesis and God made a promise that I will give you rest. And he ingrained that in our minds because Noah's very name means rest, but he also sent a rainbow as a constant reminder of his consistency and faithfulness to keep his word. The Noahic covenant is wrapped up in the Davidic covenant. Whoever the Davidic king is covers all of the covenants. 
So every covenant, every promise that God has made, that one in the line of David, if he fulfills it, he fulfills it all. Abner Chow says he is the Lord of the covenants. And that is so true. So like the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, there's one more that we talk about, which is called the Mosaic covenant. And you say, well, what's significant about the Mosaic covenant from 2 Samuel 7? Well, God promised that one day there would be no more unrighteousness, no more law-breaking. The period of the judges is a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. And God gave Israel the conditional promise, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, what's going to happen? There will be curses and judgment. And time after time after time again, kings would rise, kings would fall, and there was always disobedience. But one day, someone would come and fulfill the law perfectly. Every jot and tittle, no mistakes, no sins, no failures. See, Jesus in the line of David, fulfilling all the promises, fulfilling all the law, he becomes the sovereign Lord of all. When Gabriel says to Mary, God is going to give you a son, and he's going to have the throne of his father David, she is making a ginormous statement. He's basically saying, this, this son of yours is the one who's going to change the world. This son through whom all blessing will flow is going to be yours, Mary. It's not that you're special. It's what you're carrying is special. This is the one who will reverse the curse. This is the one who's going to establish righteousness, provide rest, and he is going to set up God's kingdom and it's going to last forever. Jesus not merely is anointed like all the other kings. He is the anointed one. Every single king and every single priest that was anointed was temporary, not so with Jesus. He is the king. He is anointed to defeat our greatest foes, sin and death. He is the priest anointed to offer a sacrifice to remove forever the penalty of guilt. He is the prophet anointed to tell the truth about humanity and himself. The greatest truth is that he defeated sin because we can't do that on our own. Again, when we celebrate the baby, we're celebrating so much more than the scene at the manger. We're celebrating the eternal son come give his life on the cross as a ransom for many. And if you're uncertain about the whole anointing and how it all ends, let me fast forward you to Revelation. In 22.16, we read this, Jesus himself speaking, I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for the churches. And he says this, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Listen, church, God broke into the universe, not as some generic human being, not just as a Jew, but in fulfillment of 2,000 years of covenant promises, untold prophecies, he fulfilled every single one. And he did this to glorify his Father, to extend mercy, 
to vindicate every promise that was made and provide hope for helpless sinners. I love what Ken Hughes says. He says, Jesus Christ is no princelet or kinglet, and not merely a king, but king of kings and lord of lords. Thus, when you confess Jesus Christ is Lord, you at once confess his incarnation and messiahship and lordship sealed by his glorious resurrection as he now forever reigns. Look, Jesus is the Savior. He is supreme. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the Sovereign King, and he's sine fine. I couldn't think of an S word that stands for forever, so we went with Latin, which is very appropriate because it means without end. Look at verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Listen, Jesus, he's it. The final ruler, the only ruler. David died, Solomon died. Their reigns lasted for about 40 years. How long will Jesus reign? Forever. We were watching the Nativity story last night. Kyla said, she looks like she's 13. I said, yeah, sweetie, she's two years older than you. What do you think Mary is thinking when Gabriel is telling her all these things about her son? Well, that little 13-year-old would have been really well-schooled with the scriptures. I'll tell you what she was thinking. Daniel chapter 7. Because everything that Gabriel is saying is helping her as she memorized Torah to connect the dots. Daniel 7 and 13 says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion will which not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This promise made to that young 13-year-old girl is the most comprehensive. It includes all people, all nations of all time. If you want to measure someone's greatness, you ask how great will they last? You and I, Lord willing, 65, 75, 85 years, 100 years from now, someone might be aware of you, great kid, grandkids, great grandkids, for about 200 years, 500 years. Believe it or not, you will be forgotten. It's going to happen. But for Jesus, 2,000 years later, you woke up on Christmas Day showed up at church to celebrate the king whose name will never be forgotten. Jesus, listen to this, he will never be replaced. Jesus will never be impeached. Jesus will never have a successor. He will never die. He will never be overturned or overtaken. He will never need or want to be reelected. He will have an eternal rule. And that's what makes him so great. There's no one like him. The book of Revelation in chapter 11 says this in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your rage came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, to give reward to your slaves, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Listen, lots of people are very nonchalant today, and they're singing Mariah Carey songs and songs about Santa. You know better. We celebrate Christ because he is the king of the universe. Let me close with a quote from Pastor Daryl Ferguson. As we think about what we've saw this morning, you can take this so many different directions. You can talk about Jesus' greatness on, based on etymology, what his name means, he's the savior. You, you can talk about Jesus based on his ontology, who he is, he's God. You can talk about Jesus based on Old Testament theology, that he's the fulfillment of all scripture. But when you talk about Jesus, just talk about how great he is. Listen to what Pastor Daryl Ferguson said in speaking of the greatest gift of Christmas. As God, Jesus was equal with the Father, infinite, immeasurable, incomprehensible, unfathomable, unsearchable, unmatched in love, perfect in wisdom, unlimited in power, unequaled in greatness, infinite in holiness, staggering in majesty. His glory fills the universe, but the universe cannot contain him. He was never created, never began, never came into existence. From eternity past to eternity future, he has always been and never will change because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the great I am, the self-existent one. He is the first and the last, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the ground of all being, the prime mover, the author of life, the great king above all gods. He created all things and in him all things hold together. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Nothing is too difficult for the mighty God. He is, const, he is uncontestably great, great beyond any idea of greatness that has ever dawned on us. He is eternally blessed, exalted above all, and forever praised. He is beautiful beyond comprehension, glorious beyond words, and desirable above all earthly pleasure. His judgments are unsearchable, his paths beyond tracing out. No one has ever been his counselor, and no one has ever given to him that he should repay because from him and through him and to him are all things. I trust that you came to celebrate this Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father, there is no one greater than Jesus. He is our Savior. There is no one that is more needed than Jesus because he brings salvation from sin. Oh, Father, thank you that Jesus is holy and perfect and pure. He is the Son of God. There is no one more divine. He is great, and there is no one greater. He is the Son of the Most High, 
and there is no position higher. He is the Messiah. He is the King. There is no one more worthy or noble or honorable than our King Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to behold his beauty. And would you please take these truths, God, press them deep down into our heart, not so that we can recite these things and communicate these things from a pulpit, but we would live these things in our lives. Oh God, help us to be more loyal, more loving toward you, more full of admiration, more full of worship, so that Jesus Christ will get all the glory, all the fame belongs to him. Lord, would you help us to spread that with our mouths, with our lives, with our thoughts, with our affections, with our very being. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.